This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. My guest today on The Literary Life is my good friend Carl Hyacin. On the, um, on the publication of his new book, Squeeze Me. A lot of pythons in this book, Carl. <laughs> well, we've got a lot of pythons, you know, in Florida. And uh, I gravitate to that kind of um, uh, wildlife, as you know. And they always, uh, there's always some role for outsized role for nature in, in all the novels. I think that's just, uh, maybe a psychiatrist could, could figure that out, but that, that's where I always end up. Well, what's, what's also kind of amazing, Carl, is you've, you've written a book of the moment. There is not a book that I can, there's not a fiction that I know of that uh, speaks to us right now, sort of 30 days, before, 45 days before an election. Tell me what the origin of this novel is and sort of how you came to it. Well, I mean, I thought of it, obviously, just because of, well, a couple things. I mean, the, the, the pythons I wanted to work in because they'd become such a menace and they're sort of chewing their way through the Everglades and showing up in, in residential suburbs. And, move, you know, and I always think, well, this is, I'd moved to Florida as a tourist and I fell in love with it. I bought a house here and then there was, you know, there was a python in the washing machine. You know, I think it would shake me up. So, I mean, I had that in the back of my mind. But moreover, I think it was the times, just the whole tumultuous time that we're living in. And, and the way the politics has, has, has not just intersected, but how Florida it plays such a role in it. And the fact that, you know, the fictional, I, I knew I wanted to write about the, 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 the Trump era in a way. And I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to have a fictional president with a vacation mansion on Palm Beach. And then I'm just going to throw in a bunch of big ass pythons and see what happens. You know, and it was, it was it, it, a little more complicated than that. Um, but I, as you said, and I, this is the fastest turnaround I've ever had with a novel. Usually, um, and you know this, you, as a writer, you, you can finish a novel and it can be nine months or a year before the actual finished book arrives in a box on your doorstep. But this was a very fast turnaround. They wanted to have it out, you know, before the election because apparently they saw some similarity between my character and the president. <laughs> I can't figure that out. But anyway, so I... And, I was writing all through the first part of the pandemic shutdown. You know, I mean, I was finished. I didn't stop. I was writing up until almost May, you know, and the, and the book came out August 25th. So that's, that's a very, very fast turnaround. And I think it makes it more timely. Also, it speaks to the fact that I, I was, I was, I was running late on the book anyway. You know, I just had a lot of stuff going on in my world that I, I didn't get cranked up on it until, later than I had wanted to. And then um, my editor and your, your dear friend, Sonny Matta, my editor for almost 30 years, um, passed away in December. I was in, really in the middle of the novel. 
and and you know, if he Sonny was, was Sonny able to to work his magic on some of it with you? Yeah, he, well, what it is is he got me going, and and you know, he'd seen probably maybe I don't know half the manuscript because I sent I sent it to him in in four or five chapter book pieces, and 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 he would we talk, and he'd give me some ideas, and mostly what he always said was. Well, there's nothing here that we can't we can't fix later. Uh, just keep writing, and then I'd always say, "No, you have to tell this will eat at me and gnaw at me. You've got to tell me what it is. I'll go back and fix it now, or I'll try to fix it now." That's how we kind of work. And um, no, and we were. I mean, I was ha having some trouble getting started at all because of events, uh, some personal stuff, and uh, and he was the one. It's been a tough year all the way around, hasn't it? It's been really difficult. You know, you, you also, you know, you dedicate the book to your brother, Rob. Yeah. Um, just a lot going on in this. Yeah, world. no, it was, it was, it was hard. Yes. But everybody, you know, everybody has lost a loved one. There are writers that have had, you know, and been through uh, divorces and done all this stuff. And, and, you know, they're, everybody struggles in their own way, but I've always been able to, to keep writing. I mean, uh, in my life, you know, I, I never had something stop me as cold as, as, as when, when Rob was killed. And so, but Sonny was great. Everybody at Knopf was so wonderful to me. Um, and, and all he, he says, when you're ready, just start when you're ready, get on it when you're ready. And, and he didn't push me. He didn't say there's a deadline. And so I did. And, and so we'd, we'd had several good months of, 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 you know, sending chapters back and forth and talking when he, he got sick and passed away. So you know how it is. Writers, you almost, you almost feel orphaned uh, when you lose an editor that you've had for that many years. And he, of course, is, was an iconic figure in New York publishing. And luckily, Knopf has such talent there um, that, you know, the, the manuscript, the manuscript was... Uh, passed off to Peter Gathers, who was a great editor who I worked with on, on several nonfiction books. And so it was sort of a seamless transition and, and, uh, and, and, you know, we, I got it, I got it done, but yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a brutal period. And, uh, and, and, and the whole while. family, the whole kind of family is like that. It's a family. So yeah, they are. And they were know, so like, supportive. You know, and, uh, Paul Bogards has been there forever with you, and oh, Paul is a, Paul is amazing. Can I tell you a funny story about the pythons? This is true. You know, so the book is it isn't done yet. I about like three quarters of the way finished, and Paul came down here on a vacation with his came to Florida with his family, and he went out Tamami Trail or somewhere. Maybe everybody put his family on for the day, and they take you through the swamps and the sawgrass, and so he's flying through. He's loving it. You know, it's a great thrilled to be out there and see the Everglades like that. And all of a sudden, the, the airboat driver slows down, says, don't get off the boat, and leaps off the boat himself and is in the water wrestling this giant python that he oh, saw. really? You get oh, a bounty. Uh, you know, that's right. There's the bounty. You're, you're supposed to remove them from the Everglades. So you get a bounty, and the bigger they are, the more money you get. And right. so Paul's on there going, holy shit. And, and there's water, you know, about four feet of water holding us. I don't know, look like a 12 footer, maybe bigger, maybe 15 feet. And the guy's got it and he's all happy. Of course, he's gotten bit and everything else. He climbs back in the boat. So Paul is texting me saying, okay, I believe you now. 
uh, and sending me pictures of, the, of, his, of his, the airboat driver. So it was so ironic because I've been on a couple of python hunts, as you know, and I spent a lot of time out there. I've never seen one or been, been, been there to catch one. And he goes out one time as a, as just as a Guggen tourist and he gets the whole show. Well, you know, you've always said that about all your books. I remember hearing you speak somewhere and you said, you know, you would send your, you know, you'd send the manuscript up to New York and people would go, that's impossible. Nothing like that possibly <laughs> happened. And then the next day it would be in the newspapers and you'd send the clippings. So to stay ahead of, uh, to stay ahead of things is really hard for someone who writes the way you do. Well, you know, and what I would do is, and my agent, Esther Newberg, the same thing, you know, I, some of the things I'd write, and she's just, you know, she's a tough cookie from New York. She's seen and heard everything. She said, well, that's just ridiculous or something. So I, what I would do is I get a, you know, I have a clip from the Herald or from uh, the Tampa Bay Times or just some little Florida story. It might be only four paragraphs long, but it was so it'd be so mortifying and, and it would be, be right on point with whatever the scene I had sent them, you know, whatever bunch. To, right. I would just click on the link and send it to her. And so she finally just said, enough, just stop sending me. I, okay, just quit. I know, I know. Um, because there was the skepticism because obviously at first, especially when, you, you know, when I started with tourist season and, and double whammy way back then, before Florida had sort of been discovered as this fertile target rich environment, you know, for novels, I, um, nobody believed anything you know when i sent my double whammy off to, to neil nyron at, at putnam's and it, it is you know it's about corruption and cheating and mayhem on a the professional bass fishing circuit uh, right you know he well, he it was like it might as well have been science fiction <laughs> to him and and so finally you know i kept sending him clippings that they're polygraphing these bass fishermen because there was so much cheating and, and since then it's even gotten this it's you know, now it's an even bigger sport than ever. But back then, right. that was, it was a leap of faith for him to publish that book. Well, you know, Florida has always been, Miami particularly, has always been kind of um, kind of light years ahead of what's happening in the rest of the country yeah. in one way or another. It, it really it really is. We've talked about it, you and I. It is really sort of not just a microcosm, but sort of a peak, you know, ahead into and in, in all the collision of culture and all of the the politics and everything that we're seeing now, if you go back and look at Miami in the eighties and nineties and, and the upheaval, and, uh, the, the immigration debate, I mean, my God, the Mariel boat lift, which exactly. you know, some people thought was the end of the world, the end of Miami, right. the end of Florida. Well, it wasn't, but it, it was cataclysmic at the time. When you think about it, um, 125,000 people being sent here from, you know, by Fidel Castro say, get out. I mean, think about that. There's stuff, the well, that... think about what you've covered. I mean, the idea of the environment, the idea of racial inequality, the idea of immigration, those are all things that you were covering, you know, back in the early 80s, really. And, I mean, and some of it is, some of it makes you sad that we're still writing about right. it, you know. I mean, after, you know, the McDuffie riots, all the, the you know, the several police shootings that we had, in, in, in Dade County uh, uh, and racial unrest that followed, and you could understand every bit of the anger, uh, the circumstances of those shootings was such that you you just shook your head. And then to have, you know, and then, then to have the in one case, the police who did the shooting acquitted by, uh, uh, after they moved the trial, got an all white jury. 
And then we come all over to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the others. And you think that just, it's, it hurts to think that uh, we haven't come that far and that, the, and that there's still, this is still going on and it's still, people are still raw and angry about it. And, and you can understand all that, but you know, I mean, all you do as a journalist and really as a novelist is you just, you, you're trying to, you just, you have to deal with what's going on. You just have to, and you can't, you can't well, ruminate what, too, too deeply. What, you, or what you've been able to do is you've been able to be very sharp with your sense of humor in terms of piercing these kinds of issues. So you've, you've used humor and you've used, you know, you've used a very, very, you know, a very clear sensibility, you know, wrapped in humor, like this book. I mean, you know, this book is a, it's a bit outrageous when, you know, I mean, it's funny, you know, I zipped right through it. It was really great, but you're left with going, my God, I'm going out to vote five <laughs> times if I can. Well, Trump you know says you I mean? only have to vote twice. It's like That's twice, right. Yeah. I, well, twice it's not a crime, apparently. Twice is not enough. That should be on the, on the bumper twice, stickers. Twice is not enough. Um, but You know, you're, you're right. But, I mean, I... I mean, I read your columns every single week. For those of you listening who, you know, don't live in South Florida, you have to, and, and, and nationally as well, since you're syndicated, you know, Carl is you know, sort of the dean of, you know, Miami journalists here in terms of, you know, his sensibility. He's covered every aspect of South Florida. To some extent, using satire and humor, I mean, which I've, I've done since I started the common, I, when I wrote columns and for the college papers at, at Emory and the University of Florida, I mean, I, I wrote a lot of satire and I, for two reasons. One, it's, it means a lot to make people laugh. I mean, it's still, I still get a kick out of making people laugh. But secondly, it's therapeutic for me. All satire comes from, a, 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 I think, a, a point of outrage, even anger about injustice, something wrong. It's not, it's not slapstick. It's not, it's not the cheap laugh you're going for, which is why I, I've been so lucky and why I've, my readers are so cool because, the, the, first of all, they stuck with me all this time. And second of all, they're smart as hell. They get it they get the joke and they're laughing for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons. And that's important. Uh, I think, uh, to, you know, it, it, it they on, and the kid, the, the young readers are the exact same way. They're completely cool about they, they get a line, a throwaway line. I'll get a letter about one little line in a paragraph that I put in there just for one reason. And, and somebody will write me and say, that, that was cool. I got it. And Carl, you know, you're you're as popular as you are with kids as you are with adults with your with your young adult books that have gone on to do so well. Also dealing with similar themes, dealing with themes of the environment, dealing with themes uh, that kids can relate to. I wanted to be a journalist, and I didn't have transferred, and then I, I finished it at, at Gainesville, um, and uh, 1974. And, and, you know, and my, my brother ended up going there. My oldest son went there um, and, uh, also. And your father was a journalist, too. No, right? my dad was a lawyer and lawyer. my grandfather was an attorney. My grandfather uh, actually, you know, was part of an immigrant family that had settled in North Dakota. And uh, he got a law degree and he came to 
uh, moved to Fort Lauderdale in 1922, and he and his partner opened one of the very first oh, wow. law practices. Uh, and uh, yeah, and so yeah, I, I, it's ironic. I, I I come from a on that side of family that's, attorneys, that's what, um, and I never really had any but interest that, in the law. That's generation. My son is a lawyer now. Yeah, right? my son, my son, who was Scott, who was a journalist for a long time, and is now is now an attorney in Miami. And my nephew Ben, Rob's son, is an attorney as well. And so hmm. Rob and I used to laugh about. <laughs> he and I were like the black sheep because we went into went into the newspaper business. Um, but um, yeah, so that I mean. So you, grew up, you grew up on the edge of the yeah, Everglades. Uh, Broward County at that time, uh, West Broward was very, it was wetlands. Um, and, uh, you know, there was no, I mean, literally, I make it sound like it, ancient times. There was no shopping malls. There was, you know, Sunrise Boulevard was Tulane and it ended, Broward ended. And then you were on the dirt road through cattle pastures. That's where we ride our bike, catch snakes go fish and do all that stuff. And I wouldn't have traded that childhood for anything. It doesn't really exist anymore, at least in not really in South Florida too. I mean, there's just too much concrete, you know, and everything pushed West and uh, all the way up to the, you know, when you, you know, you know, you've pushed it to the limit when there's a professional ice hockey <laughs> arena, right? Literally on the, on the looking over the dike exactly. of the Everglades. That's when you know you're, so, you've, you've, uh, you've, you've so just you transferred from memory to, to Gainesville and University of Florida for the journalism program. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. That that's what you wanted to do. I knew I wanted to write. And I also knew that the best way to learn, not just to write, you have to do it every day as a journalist. You're going to get better. But also, the, the, there was no better way than to learn how the world worked. Because if you got on with a good paper, especially like the Herald Coco Today, which was sort of a precursor to USA Today, um, I got sent on school assignments. I got sent to Guantanamo, for example, to do stuff. You learn so much and you get an ear for dialogue because you got, in those days, your notebook's out and, and you're writing down everybody says. So when you turn that into fiction, you've got a sense of how people really speak. And it's usually not in complete sentences. Uh, you get a sense, for instance, that uh, whether it, you're interviewing cops or prosecutors or defense attorneys or an ambulance driver, uh, occasionally they might use some profanity in real life. That happens. So when you're trying to write fiction in a, uh, in a plausible way, in a way that people believe in your characters and your story, it helps to have the journalism background. And I think, and you know this, I think that's why so many novelists uh, over the years, you know, you, I mean, you go back to, Stephen Crane or beyond started their careers as I mean, journalists. Hemingway is a perfect, you know, perfect, yeah. uh, example. Who were some of the who were some of the influences on you as a writer for you to get started in journalism? Uh, were, were you reading Pete Hamill? At the time? Yeah, I didn't. We didn't have the internet, so I didn't see Pete's column every day. But I knew Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill, both of whom became friends. Because you kind of grew up uh, in the, the sort of period of new journalism yeah it was and right. and i mean i and i wasn't a new york guy. i didn't go to new york for the first time until i was like 23 and and the hamels uh, uh dennis and johnny and and pete showed me around new york city it doesn't wow. get any better than that wow. um uh and and i met jimmy and but if they that school of this is important what we do is important and we're giving voice to people that may not have a voice otherwise. And we're, 
and you're, you're, you're talking about corruption in ways that, and even the Herald wasn't used to when I started the column. I mean, I'd been on the investigations team and on the magazine, and the, you know, those are straight, that's straight reporting, you got lawyers, everybody, but when you, when they pay you to write an opinion column, you better have an opinion. Right. I, you know, the, the, I, this, you know, I hated the columns that were on the one hand this, on the other hand this, that you don't, because people don't want any flack. They want to, they, nothing, people would always say, well, you're, your column's not very objective. And I would just burst out laughing. I said, well, it better not be. I'm getting paid for an opinion. <laughs> but it got, you, to, it got you in a lot of hot water at certain yeah. times, I remember. Right? Yeah, but I mean, you it was a of, new... You took on a lot of the big guys at the time <laughs> when, you know, when Miami was, you know, Miami was a pretty rough place. You know, not that it isn't now, but it was, I mean, the Herald in the, in the glory days, right? In the glory days, yeah. When but the Herald they, had, they had all of those investigative reporters. Yeah. And, you know, well, I had the, I was had the honor of working on Jim Savage's team, and Heath Merriweather had asked me. He knew that on my somewhere when I had applied for work at the Herald, I said someday I'd like to write a column. So first, they wanted to know if I would want to be in management. I want to be an editor. I said I, no way. I said I am not psychic. He said, what about you want to start writing a column and start alternating with Charlie Whitehead, the great Charlie Whitehead, who was there? And yes, I said, yes, sure. But my idea of a column was what. Jimmy and Pete, Murray Kempton, Mike Royko, and, and, and those right. folks were doing, uh, which was just, you just kicked ass. If someone, if you, someone was a crook and they were getting away with it and they were, and they were, you know, flaunting it or, you know, because we had such great investigative stuff coming across the transom. So there was always material for it. But you, and you had, and it's, you know, when you have the mayor of Miami, I remember when Xavier Suarez showed up in his bathrobe in the lobby of the Herald one day because he wanted a, early edition of the paper to read about himself. I mean, you, you're, you're handed material like that. There's no other talent. I mean, it was, it was really, it was, it was, it was just an incredibly fun time. And, um, but you can't be sitting on the fence uh, for a lot of what was happening, the amount of corruption that was happening uh, uh, still does. But, you know, I mean, so I, I just waded into that and that, that had, they, they really hadn't had any columnists at the paper do that before. And I didn't care about the letters to the editor. And I, but the publisher starts getting calls and the managing editor starts getting calls. Um, but to their credit, they, they didn't, oh, they, they didn't. never, they, I, nobody ever messed with me. And, and first of all, you got to, if you had the facts right, which I did, because I was relying on really good reporters all around me and I could, and also my own background. And it was just my opinion. They didn't like the opinion. Then, you know, I would tell people, if you don't like it, then why do you upset yourself by reading the column every time it comes up? Just really don't take some stomach medicine, go lie down and, and then read something else that you like, but don't torture yourself if you don't like what I'm going to say, because I'm going to say it anyway. Isn't it, you know, I'm thinking here, listening to you and I'm remembering, you know, a day, it's hard for people to know, but a day before the internet, a time before, yeah. you know, this instant news cycle that we're constantly right. on, when I would literally wake up early and, you know, I'd hear the car rumbling up to my driveway and I'd go outside and catch the Herald so that I could find out what you were writing about for that day. I mean, we miss that to a large extent. And, you know, it, with the, the sale of, of the Herald, the sale of McClatchy yeah. that just happened, what is your take on the state of, of journalism now? What I worry about is, um, I'm not worried about national news so much because of the internet, because uh, 
you know, we're, we're going to find, well, we can, you can find out what's happening in, in Baghdad. You can find out what's happening in Washington. There's so many great news organizations still out there that cover them, uh, both the, not just networks, but also, you know, the, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, which I all re read every single day. You're going to find out that what, what is in danger here is local journalism. Um, Miami has grown so much and the, the Herald, like all newspapers, the staff has shrunk. And, and that's when people wake up suddenly and all of a sudden they thought there was going to be a park at the end of their street, a playground for their kids. And now there's a Walmart superstore. Right. Right. How did that happen? Well, we didn't have any enough people to send there to cover that meeting and the vote came down and that's how it happened. But it's going on not just here, but all over the country now. It's local newspapers that are in trouble. If the paper, my brother was an editor at a Capital Gazette up in Annapolis. About two weeks ago, the, the, the publisher announced that, well, we're not going to have a physical newsroom anymore. Everyone's working mm. for, from home. And it, the staff was quite upset because they'd had a, a new newsroom constructed. It was, it was safe that they, all these safety measures put in after the shooting, right? And they wanted to go in and it's, they used to have a small town feel to Annapolis and that they're very close to that community that the newspaper has always been. And so the, the staff was going to, you know, show up and, and, and do a little protest and they got locked mm -hmm. out of the building by their own publisher. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a bad thing for that community. Forget that these are just a bunch of angry reporters and editors and ad salesmen uh and, and and truck drivers okay forget them for a second that the community is who gets hurt readers who who get hurt when you don't have enough staff to do basic reporting about what's your school board doing the, the, the covid pandemic is a perfect example of that it's never been harder to get good information because they're just Nobody's got the staff, no, not, not just newspapers, but radio, TV, everybody's had to cut it down in a way that the sources of information have been narrowed. Uh, the government has taken, and even in the state of Florida, great pains to hide key information or to, or to suppress it or to keep it, yeah. keep it hidden well, as long as they could. There, there's something that I heard anecdotally, but I haven't seen it reported, for instance, that you know, this whole idea of, 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 of um, absentee ballots and, you know, voting by mail, I didn't realize that the absentee ballots have not been sent out in the state of Florida yet. By law, the last day they can send it out is October 1, and that's what they're doing. They're going to start sending all the absentee ballots out October 1. So, you know, the window shrinks because... It takes well, that's, I mean, that's been days, then they have to say, well, the, you know, the, the Republican governor, our Republican governor has, has uh, been a, a, a Trump sycophant from the beginning. And right. he's taken, he's, he's followed him on the COVID thing. He was up there, they were high-fiving back in May that Florida had gotten control of it. And then it just crashed in front, you know, it just all came back to bite him in the ass. Um, and now he, you know, I mean, they, I mean, the, the Republican Party has made no secret of the fact that, that the, what they don't want is a high turnout. That's the thing they're terrified of, is yeah. high voter turnout. They're terrified because they don't, want, they don't want young people voting. They don't want people of color voting. Uh, uh, and they've done everything all across the South and in other states as well. And this, this thing with the mail-in votes is just 
classic. You, you, don't, you didn't think DeSantis for a second would try to make it easier for people to actually go vote, like, you know, like in a democracy? No. <laughs> so they'll, they'll stretch it out as long as they can. And, and, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was doing it at Trump's bidding because it's going to be close in Florida. And, uh, and well, the, the more votes that they can prevent from being counted, the better the Republicans are going to do. So as, um, as you, were, you were a journalist and then you decided, you got the idea, you got the novelistic bug. And before we got to know the Carl Hyacin uh, that we know, starting with uh, tourist season, you, you wrote with Bill Montabano a couple yeah. of novels, yeah, three right? Books with these, were more, these were more in the suspense sort of uh, genre. And Bill was the foreign correspondent from right. China, wasn't he? Didn't he have, wasn't he in he China? Was senior foreign correspondent at the Herald, and he also edited some of my stuff, worked as an editor there too, and we become friends, and uh, and um, I had came to the Herald, and I always wanted to get back to writing books, and it was Bill's idea, really, um, during the, the cocaine wars in the late 70s, when it was really before Don Johnson ever arrived with the TV show. I mean, it was, it was, you know, it was going on for a couple tough years, machine gun battles, all that stuff. Edna Buchanan covered it better than anybody. But, and I, but I ended up writing, writing about it too. An, an assassin, a professional assassin from Columbia who had come to Miami, been in and out of jail numerous times, have changed, all you had to do was change his name. I had all his mug shots, different mug shots, and their different names. So I profiled the guy, and his nickname was El Loco, right. naturally. And, uh, and so I don't ever forget his name was Conradio Valencia, I think, was his, was his actual name. And it was such an extraordinary story. Bill said to me, you know, we should write a novel about this stuff. Uh, and, uh, and I said, well, sure. We, so we could collaborate on the novel. And, and at the time, Bill, Bill and Rosie, uh, he said, Rosie wants a new swimming pool. What do you think we could get for the novel? He lived in the Gables building. And I said, I have no idea, but you know, let's, let's do a few chapters. So we did five chapters. We split up the characters. It was tough. It's tough collaborating in fiction anyway. And we, we had different styles, but we had come up with this homogenous style and he was traveling so much and, uh, and characters. And it had, to, we actually had to have an outline, which I don't ever do anymore, obviously from the plots, but we had to have an outline. We knew where it was going to go, how it was going to end. And so we did five, five or six chapters. And I called Pete Hamill and said, look, it, I, I, we're, Bill, this friend of mine and I are doing this book about the cocaine wars. We don't have an agent. And he said, oh, you know what? Send it to me. I'll give it to my agent. And he gave, his agent's name was Lynn Nesbitt, who was a very famous agent in New York City. Mm-hmm. Lynn gave it to her assistant to read, who was named Esther Newberg, who was my agent, is now the, 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 the head of ICM, the literary of ICM. But, and Esther reads it and she calls me, I don't know, maybe a week or two later, she said, uh, I got an offer on, on your book. I said, what? I said, yeah, you get it published. So I, I called Bill and, and wherever he was, and I said, great news, man, they're, they're going to publish the book. They're going to publish the book. And it was called Powder Burn. And he, and he goes, there's a long pause. There's a pause. And he goes, I guess that means we got to finish the damn thing. <laughs> 
and and so we did we did ended up doing three books together all sort of out of our own respective reporters notebooks right. we did a book that was set in china right. uh we we did and we did one that was set in the keys after i'd come back um and we did that the first one was called powder Burl. and so it, it was great training uh the discipline the and also just working the kind of collaboration on fiction is tough. You know, he'd be come back with five chapters in his briefcase and the Chevrolet would be blue in his and I'd have the, it might be red in mine. And we didn't have the internet to, to edit. And I mean, right. it was all physical on, we right. wrote on manual typewriters. Right. There was no, there was no hunt, you know, hunt and find. No, and we would sit in his uh, house in the gables and Bill with my typewriter facing Bill and Bill and his typewriter when we were fixing it. And we had the paper like from the newsroom that you glued together. So it was in a roll and you edited and ripped up and you cut back together. That's how I put it together. And Bill was a chain smoker back then. He smoked camel, no filter. And he also had a bunch of several small children running around the house. And he's typing, I'm typing. The kids are crawling all over him hanging off of him he's a big really burly you know guy sicilian guy and he's got the kids he's typing he's got the cigarette hanging in out of his mouth smoke billowing and i'm on the other side on, on my olivetti or whatever i had at the time and that's that's how we wrote when we were together it was crazy but it worked did he get in his swimming pool did he get in his swimming pool he did good. <laughs> he did. good 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 <laughs> well, and then of course tourist season started the cavalcade of Amazing books. And how many are you up to now? It's 15, what you call adult novels, grown up novels. I mean, I go this because an, an interview. Well, you have six, me you have then, six however, kids' books, kids, too. So that's 21. And then I've done some nonfiction yeah, stuff. So, yeah, and I, and I, the book with Bill's. Right. I, don't, I don't, it makes me feel. It makes me feel decrepit to, to go back and see how many, but then I look at how many some, I mean, and dear friends of mine who actually got, you know, connected with Esther, like yeah. John Sanford, who's yeah. really John Camp, was one of my first well, editors. I, didn't really, I did not and that realize guy, that. Yes, it, the Broward Bureau of the Herald wow. Camp was, and then- And then uh, Michael Connolly as well. Connolly, and these, these guys all do a, a book a year, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, a Grisham, um, I mean, I mean, and and Randy Wayne White. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're they're way way more productive than I. Am. Well, but you and, started. Uh, you actually started a particularly unique genre of the Florida mystery. You know, I mean, before you there was Charlie Williford yes, and Charlie some of the others. But what you've done is you've taken it and you've made the humor even that much sort of rounder and blacker and. I, I just, I write a different kind of book and this is not an excuse for not writing more, but it takes everything I've got and it might be 18 months just on the track. Right. I wouldn't do it. I don't want that kind of pressure. Right. Uh, I don't have uh, like a, a, I did one, I did two books that had the same main character in a row. I did Bad Monkey and uh, Razor Girl, but I don't usually do that. And, and uh, I mean, I usually start kind of with a fresh cast and sprinkle in some old characters, but I don't have that formula i don't and i don't have an outline i'm just really playing with ideas and and this what particular squeeze me was just the turmoil of the times and how i was going to get all that down and still tell, tell a funny story but at the same time you know it is psychotherapy for for me to, so be talk able to write really quickly about the plot of squeeze me tell us well uh there the the heroine of the novel is a, is a uh a woman who runs a uh, wildlife removal service, which we have all over South Florida. If you have a, you know, a raccoon 
in your in your piano, you call up these people and they're pros and they come and they capture it humanely and they take it out and let it go somewhere. But and there's these businesses everywhere. Most of them are run by men, but I thought it would be interesting to have a, a woman running one of these, and that's Angie. And so she's the main character and she she gets a call and and it leads her to Palm Beach where there's a big party going on. It's during the winter season, post-pandemic, just in the, in the months after the pandemic is sort of abated, and there's a giant python involved. And so uh, there's been a disappearance at a party of a, of a, of a woman who uh, is part of this presidential fan group. The, the, and you're so wonderful with names. What is her name? Well, that's Kiki Pugh Fitzsimmons has disappeared <laughs> with her cocktail on the grounds of a mansion. And, and now and they the found- mansions. The mansion's name is? Well, this is the, the first mansion is Lippet House, where this happened. Right. We haven't gotten to the, pre, the presidential mansion is Casa Bella Cosa. Of course. Uh, <laughs> Bella. At, at Lippet, Lippet House, which anyone who's had their cholesterol tested will get that. <laughs> uh, um, and so they now, Angie shows up and there's this massive python that she's supposed to discreetly remove from this party. And it, there's a lump in it. And, you know, and, and, and that's, that's how the thing kicks off. And, and part of it is solving what, what's really happened to Kiki Pew. And then uh, there's the usual subplots. There's, um, and we find out that in, at the same time the party's going on, a boat from Bimini has arrived uh, with migrants sneaking, which happens very frequently along the Palm Beach coastline, Broward, Martin, all of it. We, you know, uh, you know, Bimini is still a big transshipment point for, for people trying to get into this country. And one of the fellows who gets off the boat has actually been educated at the University of Miami on a student visa, gone home to Central America, political turmoil, seen his uncles killed, and got, and, and got back to Florida the only way he could get back in at the time, which was to be smuggled right. in. And he arrives sort of at the wrong place at the wrong time and gets wrapped up in all of this as well. Um, so... Uh, and and then there's the the presidential family that comes down and uh, uh, you know uh, he I will say the character of the president in this book and he goes by just the Secret Service nickname Mastodon is his nickname and it is the First Lady is Mockingbird they're not on on stage the whole book because he's sort of in and out with political yeah. events but but he brings with him a certain amount of chaos when he does come to the daily headlines to get inspiration for this. Right. And the, and the relationship between uh, Mockingbird and Mastodon is uh, what we might imagine. A little chilly. A little chilly. I imagine as well. <laughs> yes. One of the Secret Services involved in a serious way. But again, I, I don't think yet you have to, it's, it's that much of a read. It's one of the greatest pieces that I've had this year. It made me feel so much better by, well, the, end, lot, by the end of this. But, you know, one of the things I have to tell you about, about our friend Sonny, I don't know if I ever told you this, but one of, the great, one of the great experiences I had with him was, you know, he got so into Miami, at, <laughs> I think for you, that he used to, do you remember he used to come down to like Ocean Drive and stuff? Yeah. And I never saw him happier than I met him for a cup of coffee once. And he said that he was holed up in a room. This was on his own. He came down on his own with the manuscript that you had just delivered to him. I forget which book it was for. I forget too, but I remember he had it all over the room. He had it all over the room. And he was just like, he was in heaven. Like this 
you know, with the ocean, you know, right across the street from him. You know, you brought him, you know, so much joy. I mean, and that relationship that you guys had was so beautifully strong. I look back and uh, even when I open the books, when they get the new copies of the books and it just lists all the books and I have specific memories with each of them. But going back to the beginning, when you, even when your store was new and we were, Bill and I were just getting, I mean, it, it all it, it just meshed with time. And we all, uh, and we're it was a lot of here. That's the amazing thing. It was a lot of fun. But just the way the book fair brought everybody, uh, they just put, it literally put Miami on the map the, yeah. the, of the literary world. And, uh, and then you, and you still, you did, and you still have the, 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 the best authors on the planet who, can't wait to come to Miami Book Fair. And I remember when the first one, and I remember how it's grown and how, and, and. Uh, I remember yeah. seeing you and Dave sit at a table, sort of across from one another, going, well, is anybody going to come by? And then people did. And yeah. Spoke, I mean, you, you know what it was? It was really wonderful to, to really be able to act as the conduit have readers come together with their authors that they loved. It was. That, that was the best thing. And it was really one of the first, book fairs or events. It was. Like we were, I think we were the first consumer fair that kind of married a street fair with authors as well. Yeah. You know, we and, it, and, it, and it just, and it was embraced almost immediately, you know, and the people were skeptic because they said, well, Miami, nobody reads in Miami. It's just all glamour. It's, you know, in those days, it's just party town, you know. Right. And but I had, I was sitting somewhere where I knew that was different. Yeah, people see, were coming into the bookshop buying really good books. We had a very vibrant customer base. And I knew that if you built it, people would come. We were always underestimated. You know, the very first year of the book fair, the only authors they would ever recommend to send were kind of non-prescription drug book authors. <laughs> you know, people, you know, people either, you know, were gonna help old people or like, you know, beach reads. They kept using the word beach reads. You know, we have, you know, we have this new that's romance. So, that's so funny. Now every every publisher in New York is desperate to get their writers down to the book fair. I mean, that's a tribute to you. You did this. And, but I'd like, I, I'm proud of the fact that, you know, that we were sort of there from the beginning and that me and Dave and. Um, yeah, think about every, it. You know, that, that we, we've been able to be a part of it and, uh, and, and also it, it, as a great way to, you know, promote our book, some of the best events I ever had ever on all the tours and everything was when I came back to Miami, uh, you know, we, and we would do the, the some of the, I mean, it was just, it, it, it always, it, it was always good to come home to have. Well, I love to see you. I also love to see you with kids. You are so good with kids and turning on that next generation of readers is really the best thing we could possibly ever do. I, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, they're the, they're the best audience. Thank you, Carl Hyacin. I think I'm going to go back and read Squeeze Me one more time. Thanks for having me on, Mitch. It's been a great uh, friendship. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, very honored always to, to do these events. You've got a great store. And, uh, and uh, I look forward to a book fair where we can all be together.